whatever. Okay. So I'm excited to be up here to finish off our series on heresies today. This has been a really fun series for me. I love superheroes. If you didn't know that, you haven't been paying attention to any of the messages I've given. (laughs) But I I really love superheroes, and this is a great series for me, especially because I also love theology. So this this melds two things that I really love and lets me look at things kind of giving a new metaphor, a new way of looking at some really dangerous heresies that exist in the Christian world. Today we're finishing this up with what's been named by the author of the book that we're kind of using as the outline for all this, the Hulk heresy. So, the name for this heresy is Apollinarianism. That is a long name, and I'm going to say it about five different ways today, because I still don't say it right. So, don't even, get, don't, don't even try. <laughs> but so, Apollinarianism has been named the Hulk heresy in, in um, Todd Miles' book, so that leads us to a question. We've been relating each of these heresies to a superhero that relate some way to the superpower that they have, that, that somehow connects to misconceptions about who Jesus is and how his humanity and his deity work together. So in order to understand really how that is for the Hulk, we need to understand who the Hulk is. So who is the Hulk? Well, the Hulk is Bruce Boehner when he's not, you know, big, green, and angry. Bruce Boehner is a preeminent physicist. He's brilliant, um, in de- depending on whether you're talking about the comic books, the, the TV show, or the movie. It, it, it depends a little bit on exactly how or what he was doing. But all the stories are the same in that he takes in a lethal amount of radiation. But he doesn't die. He, he continues to live, and instead, now when he gets angry, he loses control. He grows to this, to this huge size, gets green, gets angry, and becomes the Hulk. He has incredible strength, and he's nearly indestructible. And if you ask me, he has been the victim of several horrible movie adaptations until they finally got it right in the Avengers. And in a minute, we're going to look at a, a video clip from that. But it's, it's truly, um, the only thing that limits the Hulk's power, the only thing that truly limits him is how angry he can get. He has the intelligence of basically a toddler. The the brilliance of Bruce Banner and his humanity are completely separate from the raw force of nature and anger that is the Hulk. So just to get a glimpse, because I I think most of you have probably seen the Avengers. Hopefully at this point. If you haven't, I'm sorry, this is a a scene near the end, but that movie's like, what, seven or eight years old now? So it's kind of on you. But here's a little clip to just give a glimpse of the Hulk. Call it, Captain. All right, listen up. Until we can close that portal, our priority is containment. Barton, I want you on that roof. Eyes on everything. Call out patterns and strays. Stark, you've got the perimeter. Anything gets more than three blocks out, you turn it back or you turn it to ash. Can you give me a lift? Right. Better clench up, Legolas. Thor, you got to try and bottleneck that portal. Slow him down. You got the lightning. You and me, we stay here on the ground. We keep the fighting here. And Hulk. (sighs) Smash. Okay. 
So as you can see, where Captain America is giving these specific orders and this, this great strategy to everybody else, he simply turns to Hulk and lets him loose. He's a wild animal, he's crazy, and he's strong. So how does that have anything to do with a heresy? Well, interestingly, it has to do with the relationship between Hulk and Bruce Banner. Think about it. The things that Hulk does, when it's over, nobody looks at Bruce Banner and said, hey, you did a great job. Because it wasn't him, it was the Hulk. The Hulk completely overwhelms the human side. And strangely, that's very similar to the, 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 the misconception that Apollinaris fell into whenever he formulated this heresy. And of course, he didn't think of it as a heresy whenever it started. And this whole idea of Apollinarianism focuses around this idea that Jesus, or not, that, yeah, that Jesus um, had a divine mind, but a human body and soul. And we're going to dive into some of the other problems with this idea later, but who was this guy? Who was Apollinaris? Well, Apollinaris was the bishop of the church of Laodicea. This is a, a drawing of him. You might um, remember Laodicea because that was the church in Revelation that Jesus says, hey, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So not a great track record, especially being that this guy ended up um, kind of penning one of, the, one of these heresies that we're, going to be ta- that we're talking about. So the background. Apollinaris was Bishop of Laodicea, like I said, and he was present for the Arianism debate. The Arianism debate was the Thor heresy that we talked about, the idea that the, 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 idea, the false idea that some people had that Jesus was a God, but he wasn't God. He wasn't equal with God the Father. And we talked about how dangerous that idea is because if Jesus wasn't equal in essence and in person with God the Father, then he couldn't actually die for our sins. He couldn't pay that debt. So Apollinarius saw all of this, and his friend Athanasius was actually the primary opponent to Arianism. So he had a front row seat to all this. He was involved in seeing the danger of seeing Jesus as anything less than God. After the Arianism debate, he wanted to bring clarity to the question of how do we describe who Jesus is. Sadly, he only ended up bringing more confusion, but he cared deeply about maintaining the deity of Christ. For him, that was not debatable. It was the humanity that he ended up sacrificing on. And that led to the problems we're going to look at. He believed that, you see, he, he believed that Jesus was born with a fully formed divine mind, but a human body and soul. And now, now this stems for so, from some other problems. See, Apollinaris was raised in a lot of Greek thought. Plato was one of the great philosophers of the time, and before that, and he had adopted a lot of this Platonic thought, thought coming from Plato's Platonic thought. And among that was this idea that Jesus, or that, that man is made up of body, mind, and soul, and that these things are separate, and that, that these are the, um, the parts that make it up. And these are different than even the way we would kind of define them in everyday 
conversation. To them, the body was just the physical thing. And then the, the, the soul was only how you felt things. It sensed things. But the mind controlled everything. So he said, what's controlling everything here is Jesus' divine mind. But he has a, a physical, he feels things physically like we do. And he has a, he has a physical body. And to him, this maintained the deity of Christ because he had, the, in his mind, the entirety of the Word. You know, in John, it talks about the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word was simply, in his mind, the mind of Jesus. Now, this meant that Jesus was, in, in, his, in, in Apollinaris' view, it made Jesus immune to suffering, to temptation, and emotion. Now, that's a huge problem. So, the problem is that Apollinarius had, had proposed a Jesus that in the end wasn't really human. It, it, it looks a lot more like the Hulk, where, yeah, it might be, the, 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 originally it was human, but then it's completely overwhelmed by this other force, by, by the mind that's really, it looks a lot more like a puppet controlled by God than someone that's wholly divine and wholly human. At best, you could claim that Jesus was partially human, but the divine side quickly overwhelms the human side in the Apollinarian view. It's a lot like Bruce Boehner. The Hulk completely overwhelms him. And when the damage is done, it's not Bruce that did it, it it's the Hulk. Now, this didn't just come from nowhere. Like I said, this, this started out with some Greek thought, and he began formulating, okay, so how could this work if the idea of what humans are in the Greek mind is accurate? But it didn't stop there. There's also this idea of immutability. Now, this is something that we as Christians agree with. We believe that God is immutable, but we mean something very different than what Apollinarius viewed immutability to mean. In our view... God is, in his character and person and essence, unchanging. And that's the idea of immutability. But in Apollinarius' view, and in the view of a lot of the um, Greek thought of the time, the idea of God being immutable meant that he could not change at all. I mean, he could not feel emotion. He could not, um, yeah, he, he couldn't feel emotion. He definitely couldn't suffer or be tempted. And that's a huge problem when we get to Jesus. Because we see throughout Scripture that Jesus was tempted. He did feel things. He did have emotion. It says that zeal for his father's house consumed him, and that's when he chased the money changers out of the temple, or he had compassion on people. In Apollinarius' view, he didn't have any need for that because in their mind, change was always better or worse. And this was view- and that an emotion was viewed as change. That's a problem because if in one moment God is any better or worse than he was before, then if he's now worse, then what then that, that's, that's, that's horrible. And if he's better, then what was he before? You, you run into these problems, so Apollinaris just got rid of it all. He said, no, no, no. It was, we might, from our perspective, have said, okay, yeah, he was tempted or he felt something, but the, his divine nature never actually felt that. When Todd Miles writes about this, he writes this quote when referring to Apollinarianism. Jesus, in their view, was basically God in a human shell, impervious to the trials and temptations, joys and sorrows that make up so much of what it means to be human. 
that's, that's a problem. If Jesus wasn't really human, then he couldn't die for us. We've, we've talked about that with some of the other heresy. He couldn't forgive our sins unless, one, he was God and he was also man. So Apollinarianism falls into the problem of not really having a truly human Jesus. But who commits this heresy today? Well, thankfully, not really anybody embraces it. There, there, there's no Christian groups, there's no cults, there's no organizations that would describe themselves Apollinarian or really anything like it. When Apollinarius died, his bad ideas basically died with him. They were condemned at the First Council of Constantinople along with even more varieties of Arianism and other heresies. And he, it, shortly after he died, they basically, the idea was gone. But that doesn't mean that real believers, you or I, don't fall into this kind of thinking. We, not that we embrace it, but that without realizing it, these kind of heretical thoughts slip into our perception of who Jesus is, our idea of who God is. And that's where the danger is today, and that's where Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism see, I told you I was going to screw up the way I say it, um, still has impact today. So what are some of these ways that Apollinarianism can slip into our thinking today? Well, Firstly, it's for anybody who thinks that God only cares about the spiritual stuff in our life. People who might disregard um, any, and anything that isn't just, oh, well, I mean, I, I, mean I, I have faith, so I don't need to you know, read my Bible or do anything like that. They, they believe that we relate to God solely through faith, not through thinking or anything. Now, I want to bring clarity here. This is not saying anything about how we are saved. We are saved solely by faith. But this is saying that after that, how do we then relate to God? Well, some people let Apollinarian thinking in when they think that, oh, I don't, why would I, like, read my Bible? Why would I study and try and know God better? They, they, they view the mind as a hindrance, similar to Apollinarius and how he viewed the idea that Jesus could have a real human mind is a huge problem. When the reality is, Jesus did was fully human and fully divine. He came for our mind as much as our body and soul. But how else? I believe it slips in when we're facing temptation. Not all the time, but I, I know that even for, for myself, I, there's times whenever I've thought in ways that could be described as Apollinarian. What does that mean? Well, Think about when we face temptation. As Christians, we, we can look to Jesus and see the way he dealt with temptation. We know that from Scripture that Jesus was tempted. Some of you might even know the verses in uh, Hebrews 4.15 where it says that he was tempted in every way that we were. The problem is when we slip into Apollinarian thinking, we don't, actually, we don't really believe that's true. We don't believe that we can actually fight sin like he did. This matters so much because if Jesus was completely man and completely God, then he can save our, he's here to save, he came to save our mind just as much as anything else. Um, there's, a, there's a quote that I didn't include in the slides that basically says that 
if Christ did not assume it in his humanity, then he did not die to redeem it. Saying that if, if only part of Christ became human, then the parts that didn't can't be redeemed. But because Christ was fully man and fully God, every part of us can be redeemed. A huge part of the Christian life is the renewing of our mind. We see that in Romans 12 too. But also, in the way, if, if Jesus was fully man and fully God, then we can look to him in how we fight against sin and temptation. Think to when Jesus was facing, was being tempted by the devil. He didn't simply wave his hand and say, Satan, I'm God, you can't tempt me. No, he fought him with scripture. He prayed for 40 days before that. He didn't do anything that we don't have access to because we have the spirit in us and we have access to the, to the word that he used to fight Satan and fight temptation just as much as he did. So that's how Apollinarianism thinking can slip into our minds. But I, I think that there's more to it than that. There's, there's more danger here that I think it's all too easy with any of these heresies to pass over. Because we forget that none of these guys that came up with these horrible ideas, these heresies that led countless people astray and still find their way slipping into our mind and influencing our thinking, none of them, this, none of them sat down and were like, hey, guess what? I'm going to come up with a heresy. No, they, 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 had, they had a real desire to provide answers. They had a real desire to understand, but they came about it the wrong way. Apollinarius came to Scripture looking for what he wanted to see. He didn't ask questions like, is my way of thinking about this wrong? He looked at Scripture and said, well, where, where does this support my view on this? He, he, he grabbed a passage from 1 Thessalonians at the end where Paul describes, or he doesn't describe, he, in his... Um, farewell, he says, let God bless you, you body, soul, and mind. And Apollinarius jumped on that and said, see, he's approving of this, of this Greek thought on this subject. When m- most any scholar would say what, or what um, Paul was actually saying there was simply, let God bless all of you, every part of you. It's just a, it, it's a line to just include every aspect of who you are, not specific aspects of what make us up. Apollinarius, but Apollinarius came to Scripture looking for what he wanted it to say. I think all too often we do the same thing. We come to Scripture looking for the approval of Scripture in what we're already doing. We don't want to change. We don't want to change the way we're thinking. We don't want to change the way we're acting. But we need to come before Scripture, come before the Word of God, and ask God, what are you really saying here? Who would you really have me be? What, would, what, what should I really be thinking? And this should engage our mind, not simply read a line and embrace it, but think through, what does this actually mean? What was God actually saying when he inspired the writer of this, this verse to write this? Like Romans 12, 2, I, I absolutely love this verse. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good 
pleasing and perfect will. Focus on the first half of that. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christ came to save every aspect of who we are. He came to renew and redeem all of who we are. Let that include your mind. Don't simply embrace the, the, the poor Apollinarian view, this hit, hidden danger that exists in the way we think. Thank you guys. Go ahead and break up into your tables and answer the questions that you got.